Hello and welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup with me, Gareth Hanna, as always, or Jonathan Bradley. Hello, how's it going? And Adam McKendry. Hey guys. Well, while these two flick through Twitter, um, I'll start off with the positives this week. It'll not take very long. We're basking in a sunny Kingspan Stadium, although actually it's freezing, so we're inside. Um, and that's the first time since the podcast began that we've actually been able to look at the sun. Well, that's that's the plus points then out of the way. So um, on to the negatives. Uh, since we began the roundup in the early stage of the season, on the pitch things have rarely looked quite this bleak. That last cast defeat to Edinburgh on Friday evening. Where does that leave Ulster and how bad is the current predicament? It leaves them in a mind of uh, unpleasant stuff. Um, if you're looking at the league table over the last two weeks from where you expected to be to where you are, this has been a complete disaster. We kind of alluded to this um, last week when we were speaking about, yes, Ulster had got five points against the Kings, but the night of itself still wasn't a success because you expected to put five more points or at least four points between yourselves and Edinburgh which would have had that gap up to seven ahead of ahead of last week's game so you would have expected to be sitting here today 11 points clear of Edinburgh and now you're level with Edinburgh instead with the way results have gone over the last two weeks you're not I mean we're sat here it's almost March and one thing I did not expect to be having to do is nervously look at Bennett and Treviso's fixture list to see just whether else we're going to be pipped to the post there to even get in a playoff for the Champions Cup. So, as you say, with the one win in the last two games, the overall change to the table with Edinburgh winning twice, Treviso winning twice and Ulster only winning once has been an absolute catastrophe. Well, we've talked a lot about ambition and hopes and aims, but... Are Ulster now at the stage where the only aim for the rest of the season is to reach the Champions Cup? It's getting pretty close. I want to throw in one thing that I sort of worked out this week. Remember that game against Benetton here at the Kingspan Stadium where uh, it needed a late comeback? Yeah, I was thinking the same. If that had went the other way, then uh, the teams would practically be level at this stage. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. If it went the other way, there'd be two points between the two sides as opposed to eight. I don't think Teresa nearly came back out there as well. (laughs) Yeah. The fact that Ulster have beaten Teresa twice, they're eight points ahead of them. Ulster are what? That's the difference between this season being a semi-disaster at this point than just an unmitigated disaster. Mm. Ulster walking a very fine line and I think you're right, Gareth. I think you have to sit back and reassess uh, your priorities because right now Ulster Ulster just need Champions Cup rugby next year purely from a standpoint of recruitment and (laughs) financially, basically. To get into the Champions Cup, they need to get back into the top three anyway, which would be the playoffs. But right now, well, no, like, well, they could, they could, they could get in, they could get in by the fourth place playoff. Yeah, but well, well, while, while we're talking about those, just I know before last week, it's not something I had ever really given an awful lot of thought to because didn't really think Ulster were going to be in this position. But how exactly does that playoff work? Well, that's well, the thing because, like, coming into this season, I think in our, like our very first podcast, we talked about the fact that. This season wasn't going to be particularly interesting because in a best-case scenario, 
Ulster were still worse than Leinster and Scarlets, but better than Edinburgh. And in a worst case scenario, we thought they were still going to be better than Edinburgh, but not as good as Leinster and Scarlets. The third always looks like pretty much guaranteed where Ulster were going to finish. That obviously hasn't played out. So, like a lot of people, we probably spent the early part of this week for the first time writing about the permutations of next season's Champions Cup, which as it currently stands, Ulster would be home to Connacht in a playoff. Connacht being the fifth place team in Conference A for what is the seventh place um, from the Pro 14 into the Champions Cup. That's only Connacht because the Cheetahs can't qualify and are in the playoffs spots at the minute, or sorry, in the Champions Cup spots at the minute by virtue of being in the Pro 14 playoffs. So now this could have been even more of a mess. And if Italy hadn't given up their Champions Cup spot coming into this season because they wanted to make it more of a meritocracy, regardless of the fact that Teresa might actually be there on merit tonight anyway, then we wouldn't even have this option of uh, the playoff because the seventh place in the past would have went to Italy. So by all metrics and by all measures, this is just a complete and utter mess now. And you have to get to next season without any more lasting damage than has already been done by this season and that comes down to the next six games and now possibly seven games just to make sure that you're not uh, facing up to away trips to Romania and Russia next year or I suppose in a more negative way trying to attract players a year out from a World Cup without Champions Cup rugby and just the loss of sponsorship the loss of ticket sales the loss revenue in general, the hits that you would take from not being, and just prestige as well from not being in Europe's top competition would be a complete nightmare So just just to be crystal clear at the end of the season, 4th place in each conference pays 5th place in the opposite conference No, and we obviously weren't crystal clear, sorry <laughs> It's 4th, it's the two 4th place teams in each conference playing a playoff for the final right, Pro 14 place in the Champions Cup, because the Cheetahs are currently in the top four in Conference A and they can't qualify for the Champions Cup right now, uh, that playoff spot will go to the fifth place team in Conference A. So for this That's year, for this year, if the table stayed as it is, it would be fifth in Conference A versus fourth in Conference B. But in future years, if the South African teams are allowed into the Champions Cup, it will revert back to fourth v fourth. And I understand that. It's complicated by the fact that there are still Pro 14 teams in the Challenge Cup at present, which yeah. offers a Champions Cup place to the winners if they're not already qualified. Mm. So there's a lot going on that. Uh, Too much for, for a Tuesday afternoon. We probably didn't expect to have to deal with until uh, Ulster got themselves in a position <laughs> where they've won one more game than Benetton have managed this year. And a part of that was on Friday night where um, they learned how, how France felt a couple of weeks before, I suppose. Yeah, this game was, well, I was going to say this game was lost a long time before the drop goal, but actually Ulster were, of course, winning up to that point. And the fact that Ulster were down in the Edinburgh half with two and a half minutes to go, seemingly, you know, in a, in a very simple place to close out the game and still manage to lose from there is even worse. But... Edinburgh were fully deserving of their win. They dominated that game. Just looking at the stats, they had 70% of territory and 61% of possession. 
that's all you need to know about how this game went. Ulster had to do a ridiculous amount of defending, and it's a credit to the defence that it wasn't even worse. The two tries they conceded, <laughs> very ironically, were quite per sets of defence. But apart from that, Ulster did so much defending, and they. It, it, I'm, I'm just really worried as to what it could have been if the defence wasn't uh, working as hard as it did. And that's a credit to Jared Payne for the work that he's now doing with the team. I think so, there's like a school of thought out there, um, mainly on some very positive social media accounts, that it's like a good thing that Ulster showed so much fight and determination, especially in defence. The key thing was the increased line speed and the added aggression you saw Luke Marshall being the best example of coming up out of the line and picking his moments, forcing two big turnovers, which were key in making the game in any way close in the end. But if you put in that much effort and that much fight and that much doggedness into a game against Edinburgh at home and lose, like, how can that be a positive? Like, you deserve to lose the game. It wasn't as bad as it could have been because your defence was so much improved. But I don't know how anyone can take that as a positive portent for moving forward because the fact of the matter is if you play or if you think that you play well and you get beat by a fairly average Pro 14 side at home then that doesn't all go well for your next six games at least what three of which are against better teams than you played on Friday Ulster were dominated at home by a mid-table Pro 14 side. If you put the two conferences together, Edinburgh would be somewhere in the mid-table mix. They wouldn't be in playoff contention. And that's where Ulster are at the moment. Like Edinburgh are in good form, to be fair. But then you're also looking at the fact that they were playing like their fourth-choice loose head and their fourth-choice tight head. They were missing their entire tight five, essentially, mm. on international duty or through injury. You know, You forget about the likes of WP Nell and stuff because he's been away but you know he would have been a cornerstone of what they were doing for years in the scrum and like Richard Cockrell's obviously added a lot of doggedness there but you know you've got Marfo and Dell McAnally Sutherland were all Bergen Nell Toulis Gilchrist all not playing you know that's probably that combination is probably five six when you throw um, Hamish Watson in, that's probably six of Edinburgh's starters in the back weren't playing, some combination of all those names. And they were still able to come here and win. Oh, now, obviously, if you're looking at the Ulster team, I think like the team that Ulster has unavailable at the minute would beat the team that they have available. You know, The people in the treatment room in Ireland camp and unavailable, would you would get a better team out of them than you're currently putting on the field. So that's obviously an issue in terms of depth being stretched completely. But looking ahead to the rest of the season, it has to be a massive concern that that team put as much into that game and still lost as they did. Because you have to win, realistically, I think you have to win four of your last six to catch Edinburgh or overtake Edinburgh, as it were. But looking at Benetton's fixture list, like I genuinely think that you have to win three ga- three of your last six, and you've only got two home games. 
to stay ahead of Bennett and like Bennett and uh, Russ Petty on Twitter who puts together a rig of interesting stats had everyone else's fixture lists compared and Ulster had the toughest remaining fixture list in Conference B and Bennett and have the easiest like they have to go to Kings they still have to play Zebra again I think they have to play Connaught and Dragons or possibly the other ones they should go into all four of those games the formula they've been in winning five in a row as favourites so for all we talk about the possibility of the disaster scenario where they where Ulster end up in a playoff it could actually be worse than that is it fair though to bring up that the Pro 14 as it stands is grossly unfair because Benetton get to play Zebra three times whereas Ulster have more games against the other provinces who are obviously better teams than Zebra this was something that sort of got floated when the restructuring was announced and it was being seen as a good thing to protect the derbies. But that was always going to give Ulster a more competitive fixture list and Connacht as well, here in a similar position in the other conference. Whereas Treviso get to play Zebra three times, Cheetahs get to play Kings three times, um, the other sort of uneven balances in the fixture list like you will, you can bet as much as it shouldn't be an issue you can bet if Ulster finish behind Treviso then somebody is going to point out the fact that the difference is probably going to come down to the fact that Treviso will have beaten Zebra three times and Ulster's extra fixtures as it were were away to Connacht and away to Munster one of which they got completely tonked in and the other one they'll probably lose as well so that will come down to being the difference. It shouldn't come down to the, being the difference over the course of the season. And I mean, I guess Connor got to play Zebra twice and lost to them twice. Ulster lost to Zebra as well. So uh, maybe playing Zebra three times isn't quite the blessing that we're saying it is. Yeah, is, is this just something new that we're just talking about because of where Ulster are? Or is this a wider issue that that people are thinking maybe isn't viable long term? I think just just before Alan... Goodness sake, John, you haven't shut up this whole podcast. I've had a lot of time to but think. Go on. Just just before we let Adam answer that one, I think it becomes an issue if Kings don't improve dramatically whenever the South African teams become eligible to qualify for the Champions Cup. Because if it comes down to the fact that Cheetahs end up qualifying for the Champions Cup because they're guaranteed 15 points every year from yeah. playing the Kings, then it becomes a big issue. Can Is I, that what you were going to say? Can I speak now? <laughs> Uh, we we were talking about this earlier, sort of in, in terms of the problems the league has, and the conference system is one of them, but it's not sort of the top issue it has. I th- I think there is an element of we're only talking about it because Ulster are in this position. I think if Ulster were in the top three, I think even if Ulster had won on Friday night, we wouldn't even be discussing this. Probably. But the fact is, Benetton. Well, the. The bottom line is, I don't think... I could feel you get getting angry every time he I, said Treviso. But I, 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 yeah, I know. They're not, they're not Treviso anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I, the sponsorships. I've, <laughs> I feel like Ulster cannot use it as an excuse because they've played Zebra. You know, Ulster have had enough games against yeah. lower-level opposition that they shouldn't be in this position you know, Ulster have enough games that they can lose away to Connacht. They can lose um, 
away to Munster. Not not that we're saying that's acceptable, but they have enough games that they can lose those games, and they should still be in plenty good position to make the top three. Um, especially with their home games, you know they they shouldn't be losing games at home to Edinburgh. Um, that's that's not an acceptable result for me, and especially in the manner that it went. So. As much as the fixture list does favour Benetton and the Cheetahs, uh, there's no way you can use that as an excuse because Ulster have enough games during the season that uh, finishing outside the top three in this conference is just not a good season, not a good enough season at all. No, 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 hang on, wait, because he's brought us back to the Edinburgh game, so it means we can neatly now (laughs) slot in the audio from John O'Gibbs and we'll not be hopping out everywhere. So, it was John O'Gibbs' first defeat as head coach, well, as not really as head coach, but as in official charge of Ulster uh, last Friday night, so here's what he had to say about Edinburgh's victory. I I just think, we, we put a hell of a lot of effort into that game, and I think you know, the sheer amount of defence that we did, it ultimately it, it, it cost us. Uh, but the game being won on the last last action, probably a reflection of how how much energy we did put into D and we stayed in it because I think they they managed a few things better than us. Um, and yeah, just the exits for us was, was really the difference. Um, we did have a situation where we possibly could have managed a, an attack situation in the last five minutes, but better. But really, I'm not sure that was the the deciding of the game. I think it just it was um, cumulative effect of not exiting well, and uh, you know they just got more and more attack at us, and uh, we worked bloody hard on deep. And you can't question that. I thought Stu. And, and Luke Marshall in particular put on huge shifts. So sorry, Johnny, you got rudely interrupted by Johnny Gibbs there. You were talking about the Super Bowl. Well, I was going to link it back to what we were talking about before, and it just kind of seems no, no, it's fine. It's very much out it's, of context. It's very, well, I feel bad now. But well, like I was just going to make the point in addition to what Adam said that like the Super Bowl is the most watched annual sporting event in the world, and those teams play uneven schedules. It's not like I was saying, well, this is pointless because. Philadelphia Eagles get to play the Washington Redskins twice a year, you know. But that's where you have to have some sort of competitive balance of teams getting better and teams getting worse. So it becomes unmanageable if the Kings are always dross because it's an unfair advantage every year to cheat us. But at present, we're only discussing this in an Ulster context because of how bad their season's gone to the point where we're now concerned that Teresa, who have won 50% of their games, I think, in the league, are coming up the wheels as it were like I know people are going to say look it's 8 points but and 8 points is a sizable gap but we're also projecting forward looking at Benetton's fixture list uh, looking at Ulster's fixture list and looking at what Ulster are going to be able to put out on the field over the next 4-6 to six weeks well talking about the fixture list see everything's linking in perfectly now you you're mad for your segways fantastic so talking about the fixture list Ulster of course are away at Scarlet's on Saturday evening we spoke last week briefly about how Scarlet's were uh, going to be far less than full strength but um, Ulster as always are going to be less than full strength as well and now are they going to be without John Cooney definitely um I think it's we've discussed this as well it's it's very hard to tell because you would suspect he's not actually going to be in the Ireland squad 
but it's whether they then keep him as injury cover mm-hmm. or not. It, it might work in his favour that he can cover 9 and 10, and they might keep him to cover both. Um, but we don't know. Whatever way it is, it's going to be quite disruptive for Ulster that he's not training with them this week, uh, especially in a week where it looks like they're going to be missing Johnny McPhillips, uh, regardless of what Dwayne Peel said. Um, you know, you'd love to have your scrum half running lines with uh, his halfback partner, but if Cooney's not there, then that's obviously not possible. So it's, it's a very disruptive week for Ulster with like Cooney. But we, we should say it's a very deserved call up I for him. I'm completely delighted for John Cooney. Yeah. Very nice lad, friend of the podcast, so on and so forth. <laughs> but Ulster did not need to be loose to John Cooney yeah. this week. Like, by my count, Ulster are going to be putting out a team against Scarlets that has maybe two, possibly you could argue three first-choice players in it. We're going to make a big deal about Scarlets being down 11 to Wales and plus John Barkley in addition with Scotland. But this Ulster team bears no resemblance to the Ulster team that you would put out if everyone was fit and available. And that's a real concern because we've talked all year about the depth or lack thereof. Well, Ulster then, far from full strength, uh, as usual, Craig Gilroy, we should say, is definitely out. You'll probably know this by the time you hear the podcast, but they possibly not. Uh, Rob Herring, uh, Johnny McPhillips, both named as doubts today, so uh, we're sort of assuming that they're probably out, aren't we? But mm-hmm. um, where does that leave Ulster then going into this game, and how much of a chance of success have they? Is, the thing is, the Scarlets are a side that you can really get at during the international periods because they're so uh, hit by the injuries. Now, we've talked about how Ulster hit by injuries as well, which means it's a much more even playing field. But the principles of the Scarlets are still the same. Wayne Pivak has uh, a very a very good game plan. I love the way the Scarlets play, just their, their fast, fluid, flowing game of rugby. It's, uh, it's by far the best in the Pro 14 uh, alongside... Uh, Leinster, but the Scarlets don't have a big dominant pack like other sides. Tagburn aside, who is phenomenal, and we're hoping there's an outside chance he might be called up for Ireland. But um, the Tagburn also brings up another aspect in that he has won nine turnovers in his last two games which is a phenomenal stat for one player. And it just emphasises how big the breakdown battle's going to be uh, on Saturday. And that's where Nick Timoney is going to really have to step up as an open side because he's been playing number eight, of course, for most of this season, where there's a little less emphasis on being the guy who has to do all the groundwork. But if he's going to start seven on Saturday... He's got to prepare to put in a lung-busting effort to get around that pitch because he's going to have burn on him. Uh, there's a possibility that uh, James Davis is going to be playing as well, and we all know how good he is at the breakdown. He's one of the best players in the Pro 14 at it. Um, so, you know, well, t- Timoney, how many tackles was it he had? Uh, 28. He had 28 tackles on fr- last Friday. He's going to have to do a lot more than that on Saturday uh, if they're going to combat the Scarlet's pack and if the Scarlet's can get quick ball 
we all know what their what their backs can do. Even with so many guys out, there's just that continuity within their team. No matter who they lose, they're bringing someone in who can be dangerous. Paul Asquith, I think, has been a great addition to their back line. He's someone who can play centre or wing. He's, he's very like Hadley Parks when he joined them in that he's someone who can operate in several different roles uh, and he's just one of those reliable guys in the backs and he'll be marshalling them well uh, I'm sure but uh, if Ulster can replicate that defensive performance from Friday night if they can cut down on those broken field situations if they don't kick loose uh, to that back three then there are ways that they can shut this scarlet side down but they're going to have to get everything spot on because the Scarlets will absolutely make them pay if they aren't completely on the ball. It would have been absolutely great crack if Joe Schmidt had called up Todd Byrne and ah. not played him. <laughs> just called him in the camp for a week and then sent it back. It would have been completely out of character, but just if Joe Schmidt had been a team player and did a bit of a troll <laughs> job on the Scarlets, it would have, been, would have been brilliant. But just sort of on what Adam says there, um, everyone talks about how great the rugby that Scarlet's plays and they're 100% correct because they are the best team to watch in this league last season from basically since they lost here which was their third game their third loss in a row to start the season from that point on the run that they went on to win to win the title including winning in the RDS finally somebody winning in a way semi-final was unbelievable to watch and what they did with ball in hand throughout that but their defence as well is something to me that's really interesting because they play with a real aggression in defence and they have so much line speed so it's not a game where you want an inexperienced 9 and 10 possibly a 9 and 10 that have never played together before as we might see but it was really interesting or interesting maybe the wrong word it was very surprising to hear talk from both Dwayne Peel and Stu McCluskey there that um, Johnny McPhillips trained fine today because he looked completely busted going mm-hmm. off but he is going to be really important if you go back to the Scarlets game here and the first 15 to 20 minutes or certainly say 20 of the first 30 minutes in the first half against Edinburgh on Friday that was as cohesive an attacking unit as uh, Ulster have really looked. In the first game against the Scarlets, their attack was largely built around a kicking game from Christian Leleafana where whenever there was slow ball or whenever he just didn't like the shape that Ulster were set up in, that he would just ping, ping the ball into the corner and peg Scarlets back. And it's something that Johnny McPhillips did incredibly effectively at the start of that game on Friday night and it's it's not what he's known for it's not something that we probably expected him to be able to do at the level that he did it but that's what you need against a team like Scarlet's to try and negate what they bring in defence and as Adam said they're unbelievable over the ball with the possibility of having Byrne and possibly James Davis in that back row so you are going to get slow ball so just changing the look when that happens when you're not in a position to try and attack off first phase, second phase, whatever. That's where, especially if McPhillips doesn't play, Ulster probably don't match up particularly well 
with Scarlet and that's just in the sense of how they're playing let alone people careening into malls in the 60th minute that are already going into touch and uh, allowing the team the opposition to then score up the other end or so on and so forth etc the various errors that were made in the last 20 minutes so. which, which probably throw in that the Scarlets haven't lost at home in the league since 2016 you know, Parky Scarlets for for all the criticism it gets for being rather empty and rather soulless, has become something of a fortress for them. Um, yeah, and like I mean, we talk about the sort of crowd sizes, but you know they've already sold out that game against La Rochelle, so it's you know it's another it's another sign that success sells, as it were. So how the crowds come into Scarlets over the next couple of years is going to be something to watch out for because. I think like we can all remember sort of those games where it looks like there's about two thousand people there, and it is, as Adam says, a big stadium. So the fact that they put that home record together there, haven't lost in years. They've now lost two in a row, both away from home. So they're going to be really itching to put that right as well. And I know obviously they lost three in a row last year as well, with Ulster being the third team to beat them. But I think they're a very different side now, so you can't really see them losing three in a row can you well if success sells as Booz Ulster could do a buy and some um, <laughs> we heard from Stuart McCluskey looking ahead to this weekend's game uh, at Scarlet so here's what he had to say um, all these games are going to be big games I think we've beat Edinburgh there at the weekend it would have taken a lot of pressures off our shoulders but now we'll just go, have to go out the next few weeks and win these big games away and if there's going to be a week to beat Scarlet it's going to be this week with their internationals away and uh, coming off the back of two defeats in a row. I don't think we've looked too much further ahead than Scarlets this week and then Glasgow the week after. Obviously, two big games for us, and if we get two big two wins, we'll be right back in it. Um, I know Scarlets have us this week, and they play Leinster again. So, effectively, if we won two games, we'd probably flip this table. And then Scarlets in bad positions. The league changes very quickly these days, and. I think with six games ago, it's still in our hands. So we just got to put in some big performances. So in a word then, just to close off, if you were to pick a winner on Saturday, does it begin with S? It does indeed. Look, End in S. <laughs> Ulster can win this game, but they're going to have to put in a monumental effort. It's going to need defence, like on Friday night. They're going to need to hold on to the ball a lot better and they've got to cut down on those stupid penalties Ulster only gave away five penalties in the game on Friday night but they were all really bad penalties to give away two of them were on Edinburgh Malls in their own in the Edinburgh 22 to give them easy clearance you know you don't give away those penalties no easy outs and one of them was Rodney Ayew charging in at a 90 degree angle to a mall you know, so those, those a are mall that was already going. A out mall that play. was already going out. <laughs> it's so, like it, it reminded me of that Henshaw one in the Millennium Stadium. Um, yeah, during the Six year. Nations, yeah. where it's like nothing you were going to do there was going to help. Like <laughs> the results, the desired results was already secured. The pr- the problem is, this is the start of a run in that Ulster need to absolutely nail. And this is the worst possible game to get it started. Well, you mentioned that. We'll factor in a listener question. Um, this comes from Snipe Watson off the forums. And he asks, what is an acceptable return from these last six games for Ulster? 
or what? Yeah, what's an acceptable turnout? Um, or how many do they need to get? I was going to say to get to where they want to be, but we don't even know where that is anymore. No, I think we kind of alluded to this earlier that like, as much as we thought coming into this season that third place was the bare minimum requirement, but also probably the most realistic outcome now you're in a position where you have to make sure that you actually qualify for the Champions Cup so the next season you can at least start with a relatively clean slate and not have what would essentially then be a 16 month hangover from this season when you end up not playing a Champions Cup game until October 2019 so the bare minimum requirement is to get into the Champions Cup next season and the concern with that is that you probably need to win at the very least four more games be that out of six games or seven games Just we should throw in the fixtures here for anybody who's not 100% sure obviously they go to Scarlet's this weekend that's followed up with one of the two home games uh, that's against Glasgow then back to back trips to Cardiff and the big one in uh, at Edinburgh which will be at Murrayfield um, then at home to Ospreys and they close that off with a wee easy one away at Munster The thing is Ulster's away record as everyone is painfully aware has been shocking this year they've won 3 of 9 one of those was against Benetton who Ulster should be beating easily enough and you've got to throw in a draw against the Dragons If you go so- back like, there are only away win in the league since September was against the Kings a team that hasn't won a game all season and they still nearly lost that game mm. so if you're saying they need to win four games they've only got two home games so they're going to need to win presuming they win their two home games they're going to yeah. need to win at least two away. <laughs> Glasgow, 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 yeah Glasgow is by no means a cert either yeah. um, and the way Ulster going you don't know about the Ospreys either but where, where do you see two away wins coming from and as a backup, where do you see a third away win coming from if one of those home games doesn't go your way? You know, Scarlet's, Scarlet's this week doesn't look good. Monster away on the last game of the season has never been a happy hunting ground for Ulster. Edinburgh, the way they're going, doesn't look good either. I'll, they need to find some sort of way to take... I was going to say take their home form away, but they've just they've just lost at home. They've you essentially need to win the two home games. Cardiff is the most winnable of mm. the three away games, and that would probably get you a playoff here against Cardiff, Connacht, or Ospreys, and then you should win that game regardless of how bad things are going. Given that you would have Best, Anderson, Stockdale, Piatai, presumably all back for. That uh, playoff game, um, whoever's the most points gets home advantage. Yeah. I assume. Yeah. yeah. Just to clear that up, in my own head as much as for anybody else. <laughs> uh, moving on to the- we don't actually know when that game's going to be either. Yeah. <laughs> um, so who knows how long this season's going to go on for? Dear news, forever, never ends. Fantastic. Uh, Six Nations then. Wales at home this weekend for Ireland. Um, uh, probably the the toughest test so far. Yeah, uh, it's going to be the first Ireland game I've been to in, <laughs> I think, three or four years, so that's going to be fun. Um, this is such a tough game to call, especially if Ireland are going to be missing Ian Henderson, Tag Furlong, and I know uh, you've got it listed down here, the quote that Andy Farrell gave this afternoon, that they're moving in the right direction, but they're not training. Which doesn't sound great. 
which does not sound positive because we know that Joe Schmidt likes to have everyone training on a Tuesday before a game. Like and if there, it would have been before, like if you didn't train on a Tuesday in a Joe Schmidt team, then you weren't playing. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. lessened a little bit of late. Mm-hmm. And Furlong's probably one of those players that they give every chance to play because he is so important, and the depth isn't there. But I agree with Adam a hundred percent. Like those. Ireland came in to this tournament certainly the healthiest out of all the teams and that's now flipped on its head because Sean O'Brien hasn't come back Gary Ringrose hasn't come back Robbie Henshaw's been added to that list Ian Henderson's been added to that list and Tag Furlong's been added to that list how many lines is that? Four? Five? Four Um, So they're big losses and then Wales whereas they had so many injuries coming in Liam Williams is now back um, Halfpenny pulled out of the last game is back to play Dan Bigger which is a massive thing um, for them is back Toby Falatai not back um, having there been some indications that maybe he might have been coming back but uh, he's not in but even still like Wales could have had zero points at this stage and I don't think people would have been overly surprised the way people were talking up Scotland coming into this tournament off the back of the November internationals and how many players Wales had out so the fact that they have six points at this stage is a real sort of morale boost for them in general Ireland don't lose at home but this for me is as tricky a fixture as they'll have certainly at home this year and possibly even the last few years I know people will point to that England game um, to finish off last season's championship but if if Ireland are going to lose a first Six Nations game at home under Drew Schmidt it would not surprise me in the slightest if it was this one This is where the bonus points have come into play because Wales are very much still in with a shout now even though they've lost the game in previous years they might be already thinking to themselves right well we're now only competing for second they still have a very good chance of winning the thing if other results go their way and they win their way in so they've still got a lot to play for and especially with these guys back you know what a boost that is Um, there's nothing more I can really add to be honest other than this is going to be a real battle and Wales will Wales will try and make it into that. They won't try and allow it to become a very open game. I think if you look at the way the teams match up, Ireland love to test your back three with how good their kicking game is through Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton. But you don't want to test Wales because your kicking game has to be completely 100% bang on against a team that has Dan Bigger, Lee Halfpenny and Liam Williams in it because they're all very good in the air Dan Bigger for me even more so than Johnny Sexton is the best at measuring his um, Gary Owens to be contestable by himself and yeah especially coming onto them himself yeah so in that way these two teams from an Irish perspective don't match up particularly well and you're going to have a new midfield partnership well not new because did they did they play together against Fiji? No, Aki didn't play that game, did he? I don't know. <laughs> I'm shrugging my shoulders here. To be um, Bundy Aki and potentially Chris Farrell 
or Gary Ringrose and outside bet who have not played together in the midfield. So in terms of your 9, 10, 12, 13 axis there, there's not an awful... Uh, there's not going to be continuity in terms of trying to create in another way. So that makes things really difficult in terms of game planning for... I've just went into my mind palace and picked out that uh, Aki did not play against Fiji last year. No, your I mind palace is Google. I had it in my head that he hadn't played in that game against Fiji, which means he's never played with Chris Farrell or Gary Ringrose. So no matter who ends up being at 13, it's a brand new midfield partnership again. What about the, the Ulsterman then? We're not going to see John Cooney on the pitch, are we? Likely not, because Schmidt, like, well, Connor Murray is entrenched in that nine jersey and it's going to take a heck of a lot to shift him from it. And Schmidt likes Marmion, so it would be surprising if he wasn't on the bench. But you can very easily see Cooney there as injury cover because he can cover nine and ten, so that little bit of flexibility makes him quite valuable as someone who can uh, be called onto the bench in maybe a couple of positions but again you you will see Rory Best start barring injury uh, as captain Henderson if he's Henderson is probably going to be unfortunate if he does make it he'll probably be on the bench because Ireland have good enough depth that you can start James Ryan and Devin Toner and you can put Henderson on the bench. I know Ryan's been having a few injury problems of his own but uh, he looks to be a little bit ahead of schedule as opposed to Henderson and then Stockdale Stockdale comes into that back three mix that Johnny was talking about because Wales have Liam Williams who is in great form uh, you saw he scored a great try for Saracens uh, at the weekend and we all know just how dangerous he is in general this, this will be Stockdale's biggest test so far for Ireland because he's either going to come up against a flyer in Steph Evans who can produce stuff on a whim or he's going to come up against Liam Williams who can pick a line brilliantly. And then you factor Lee Halfpenny into the mix just for good measure who will take a more direct route. Uh, Stockdale might not see quite as much from him but he's got a front up because his Six Nations hasn't been wholly convincing so far against a very talented and experienced back three from Wales. This is a chance for him to say, I can mix it, especially defensively, uh, with some of the best in international rugby. Okay, well, moving on to listener questions then. Um, The first one, is Rodney Ayew Ulster's poorest ever signing? Asks Liz Fraser. Harsh woman. Uh, Johnny will probably be able to go back a bit further with uh, <laughs> players. <laughs> Johnny looks wholly unamused at that. Well, but it is true. Yeah, it is true. It's so offensive. But <laughs> <laughs> so in case of you, you're a little bit older than I am. I'm here. I'm turning thirty this week. I'm feeling sensitive about it. Oh, Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Just Alan. Insulting my age. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. Sorry. Don't worry. Most people who listen to this podcast would love to be thirty again. I'm sure. Well, per- feel any better? Perso- personally, for me, no, he's not. Um, he's not Ulster's worst signing no. currently on the books. Well, he's yeah. not Ulster's worst prop signing currently on the books. Yeah. I understand where this is coming from because that was a horror show on uh, on Friday night. 
we've already talked about the penalty. Um, I think it was 50-50 for missed tackles uh, to made tackles. And so while I 100% understand why the question was asked, I don't think he's the worst signing. And I just think, even if you go to like Big Joe Fetiaki, the... uh, just the story that I'll always remember about his debut is Harry Williams having not seen him before and then seeing the first scrum and just the look of horror that came onto his face <laughs> when he realised this. And then I think it was not long after that they tried to get Rob Irwin to come back um, to play in a Heineken Cup game because they realised what had happened. Um, possibly after seeing Fetiaki and Banger, I'm not sure. Um, without being too scientific about it, I'm not going to say who's the worst, but there have been worse. <laughs> so our second question then, um, what are the priority signings for next season? Again, from Snipe Watson, who is very busy with the questions, but we appreciate them all. Yeah, priority signings, you're looking at a loose head. You'd need a second row if Ian Henderson is not going to play there. The, the problem is for Ulster, a lot of the signings are dependent on several things. If Ian Henderson is going to go into the second row, then you would argue Ulster don't need a second row or they wouldn't be allowed to get a second row. They need a 10. Um, you'd argue they need someone in the back row as well. They're, it's the whole Well, the, there are a lot of problem areas for Ulster at the moment, particularly in that pack. They need to beef it up. And they've they've done that with the signings of Marty Murr and Jordy Murphy but you know they need more Any realistic names that you would like to see oh coming boy. in? Bowden Barrett probably did a job <laughs> like, and he brings Sam Whitelock with him that would be, be great um, Marcel could see is meant to be really good friends with Elizabeth. you know we could solve the uh, solve the lock crisis but no I agree with I Adam you, I you think realistic there but I think <laughs> I think they could do with a lock, absolutely, would be a realistic place to target for an NIQ. I can't see them being allowed a loose head. They certainly need to beef up the back row, but I've been impressed with Jordy Murphy. Well, I've always been impressed with Jordy Murphy, but especially um, of late um, with the performance of But he was, he was really good on, uh, on Saturday against the Scarlets um, in sort of an unheralded role I mean everyone came away talking about James Lowe but Jordy Murphy for me was really really good and again as Adam says dependent on various other things where are going to affect um, where you need to recruit and where you can recruit so the problem is Ulster's signings are completely dependent on what they're allowed if Ian Henderson is told he's going to be playing second row for Ulster when you've got Ian Henderson and Kieran Treadwell who's recently in Ireland International I know he's not right now but <laughs> I think there is very doubtful that they're going to be allowed to sign a second row to hold one of them back I think you could theoretically make the case that Henderson is going to miss so much rugby and Treadwell this time last year you would have said could be missing a lot of rugby in the future um, remember that Munster have Byrne coming back who can play six or as a lock so that's a lock coming back into the system James Ryan 
is the next big thing on Henderson. So Irish rugby isn't short of locks. I know like Leinster have Scott Farley at the minute who would have been a great signer for Ulster when we're on the subject, but yeah. anyway. Um <laughs> Gareth laughs, but you're completely right. Yeah. Whereas uh, I think James Lowen is a project player and Ulster's project player hasn't fared quite so well. Um so I think there are enough locks floating about the place at the minute that you could make an argument for being allowed to sign one. I think for me that would be a key place that I would look to recruit um, if you find yourself in a position, certainly in the forward pack, that they're looking to uh, to add because I don't think you'll be allowed to sign a loose head unless it's a loose head from within Ireland who's not getting a game. No, taking position out of it, I just say a forward who can carry the ball. Just get in a forward who will absolutely terrorise defences well, with ball Jordy, Jordy Murphy will carry ball and but, it, but he's as not much, a terrorising ball as carrier. As, like, as much as there is plenty of natural cynicism about it, Ulster have maintained that Marcel Coutinho will be fit for the start of the season. So no. if, if he's not, then absolutely get yourself a ball-carrying bag row in. Or... If you can, regardless of whether he's fit, get yourself a ball carrying back row in. But you can't ha- you can't be saying that you're going to be paying Marcel Cotillo what you're paying, and then go to the RFU and ask to be asked to sign somebody else. Bearing in mind that you also have John Dazel, so they're not going to allow you to have three South African ball carrying back rowers <laughs> if uh, just because two of them aren't working out. I mean, you forgot about John Nazel. Anyway, moving on to the clubs. Uh, the boys were at the big game last weekend were Banbridge thrashed. I'm just going to say thrashed, even probably wasn't really. Uh, Balnehinch, 14-29 away from home. What a result, and many thanks to Adam Irvine, understand. So, Adam, tell us a bit more. I was really impressed by Banbridge because they went 14-0 down. And at that point... I was thinking to myself, Balnehinch could actually run up quite a big score here and they could be out of sight. But Banbridge didn't panic. They had James Hume returning from injury uh, to thank for a try just before half-time. And in the second half, they took control of that game and Balnehinch didn't have a sniff. They didn't even... Balnehinch had one penalty, which at that point would have brought them back to two points. But apart from that, they didn't even look like uh, a side that were even in contention in the game. Not too many sides are going to come away from Balmacarn Park with a bonus point. Uh, so this is a really, really good result for Banbridge and a huge statement of intent. Hinch, we should probably mention, were harmed by the fact that Pete Nelson and Zach McCall were both very late withdrawals. But even so, Banbridge were by far the better side, especially in that second half, and it makes for a really, really interesting run-in. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that league is looking fascinating for the remainder, which is four more games. Um, As Adam kind of said there, like with Johnny McPhillips going off injured, I think Hinch probably, well, if they didn't guess from the TV pictures, they'd probably find out sometime between 10 and 11 o'clock at night that uh, they weren't getting Pete Nelson or Zach McCall, so you lose your 10 and your hooker with about 14 hours notice, probably probably not ideal. Just wanted to touch on James Hume as well, being back, because that's a big thing. He's someone that we've seen playing schools rugby. He's been highly touted, and 
just hasn't played in a very long time because of a leg break. So him coming back, um, interesting to see whether it's Bambridge get the benefit of it or whether he's streamlined straight into the Ireland under 20s because he certainly would have been in that mix if not for injury. So great to see him back. And I forget Michael Lowry back, then we can all be happy again. <laughs> Michael Lowry gets a mention every week at this stage. Um, we'll just uh, let you hear a little bit from Daniel Soper, the Banbridge coach, of course, who had a very good day on Saturday with uh, wins for both his teams. But here's what he thought about Banbridge's win over Balna Hinch. So I just said to the boys there, they've done a lot of things for the first time. They've beaten teams for the first time. They've won a league for the first time. They've, um, you know, they've played in Division One for the first time, and 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 now they're the first team from Banbridge as a senior team to come to to Bellamacaran Park, which is never an easy place to come. And I, I played here myself, and I know what. You know how, how much pride they have and how they play here. So to come here and win and be the first team from Bambridge to do that, um, I'm just so proud of the guys, particularly that I think was at 14-0. Um, and so the way that we, we took control of the game there at 14-0 and got ourselves back into the game. And then and then I, I thought, you know, we were excellent for, for in the second half. Um, so, you yeah, know, I'm delighted. We obviously gifted them nine points, I think, in the first 12 minutes or something through our old discipline. But, you know, I think that was just probably overexcitement and we were just a bit keen. And once we got that sorted, uh, you know, I thought we were much, much better. And the second half, our defence looked very controlled and, and we gave away some penalties, but it was much better, yeah. Great to have James Hume back, someone you've worked with. So yeah, much yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, James is a is an outstanding prospect, and I, and I think look, it's great to have him at the minute. And how long we we keep him for? I I would love to see him just sail right through us and and go on and play at a higher level. But uh, whilst we've got him, um, it's great to have him, and he certainly was he was very good today. As were you know. As with so many other players, and him and Mo in the centre look very good, and Johnny Little obviously at ten, who's, who's sort of playing out of position, did a did a great job as well. So um, you know, and, and then Jason Gribben at scrum half. You know, Jason's at um, at university across in England, and, and due to, to Ports being injured, he's he you know he, he flew home on on Thursday for training, and, and and then was here for the weekend. So he's had limited time in the team and limited time training with the team and the way he played today I thought was was phenomenal for a guy with limited prep. In the context of the league you've made it really really interesting though. Yeah funny we had a target for this uh, this wee block of games um, we we targeted to get 11 points and we got uh, four points um, and we got two last week against Shannon so we needed five today and I sort of thought that our target being five come to, to Belnahinch and get five was maybe a wee bit ambitious, but that was what we needed to hit our target for this block, and, and we got five points today and, and hit our target, which is um, fantastic. And do you know what? We've made a point. We don't look at the league table. We just hit our wee targets, and, and if we keep doing that, then you know we will finish where we finish. But um, certainly, given last night's result, Shannon losing, and then you know us being able to get five points today and deny Hinch anything means that I'm guessing it's going to be pretty tight between the three teams at the top. But do you know what? It's still each team has, you know, it's in their own control. Now there's four games to go, and it's um, it's how you perform in those next four games. And and you know the players in there are delighted and they're ecstatic, but they also know that you know that can't be the that can't be the Everest. They've got to keep going. They've got to go to the next challenge and look at our next block. So um, yeah, delighted with that. So of course that wasn't the only game then in the All Ireland League last weekend. Adam, what happened elsewhere? 
Yeah, as we mentioned, it's not as close as it can be at the top of 1B after Banbridge's bonus point win at Balnehinch where they won 29-14. And Balamina took a big step away from the relegation spots with a 26-8 bonus point win over Nace at Eaton Park. So after Shannon's shock defeat on Friday night at home to UL Bohemian, Hinch are still top on 47 points, but Shannon and Ban are right behind them, both on 46. Balamina, meanwhile, have moved out of the relegation playoff spot into 8th on 26 points. That's now one point above Old Wesley. In Division 2A, Malone continue their run to the 2A title as they thump Blackrock College 54-22 at Gibson Park. City of Armagh had a big win on the road as they picked up a bonus point and a 39-26 win at Nina Ormond, while Queen's University somehow managed to blow a 21-3 halftime lead to lose 32-28 at the Dub 2 Galwegians. So Malone's lead at the top of the table is now 12 points after Highfield's game was postponed. That's now being replayed on Sunday. They're on 60 and 48 points respectively. City of Armagh are three points off the final promotion playoff spot in 36 points in 5th, while Queen's are 6th on 29. In Division 2B, Rainy Old Boys won out in their Ulster Derby against Dungannon, triumphing 23-14. Belfast Harlequins managed a point from their 51-34 away loss to promotion-chasing MU Barnhall, which could yet be vital in their push to avoid a relegation playoff. While things just keep getting worse for City of Derry, who conceded a record number of points away to league leaders Old Crescent in an 104-0 loss. Uh, Rainey are keeping the pressure on Old Crescent. The gap still eight points at the top, with the two sides on 65 and 57 points respectively. Dungannon are sixth on 33 points and six points off their promotion playoff places, while Quinns are still ninth on 15. And City of Derry are now guaranteed to be in at least a relegation playoff at the end of the season. They're still looking for their first point. In Division 2C, double success as Bangor took the scalp of lead leaders Malahide, defeating them 18-16 at home. While there was a win on the road for Oma as they emerged 18-11 victors at Tullamore. And I mean, we, I mean, we talk about how tight 1B is. 2C is even tighter. as only five points separate the top five teams. Uh, Tomond are leading on 42 points. Bangor are fourth on 38. And Oma are that final fifth team on 37. Well, moving on to uh, the Schools Cup then, which was obviously Daniel Super's other positive result um, of the weekend. Adam, well done to you. Well done, because you betrayed your old school, but it paid dividends for you because you were right, Arma did beat Wallace in the upset of the day. How, do you, how does that make you feel? Very mixed emotions. <laughs> I, I would love to see Wallace do well, but by all accounts, Arma were very good value for their win. Um, so well done to them and they've now been rewarded with another very tough test against Enst Nobody could have predicted the other three semi-finalists <laughs> Nobody <Nope>. Nobody um, <laughs> The semi-final well, Campbell, Campbell beating Balamina is a little bit of a shock um, yeah, They were behind half time uh, I, I thought Balamina were the better of the two sides but I think they are as well it was, it was a tongue-in-cheek comment about uh, the historic big three yeah. being in the semi-finals more than, more than anything else. Sorry. Well, how dare you? So the, the f- semi-final draw, in case you, you're not uh, dead sure, it's Inst against Armagh. That's on Monday the 5th of March at half two at Kingspan. And the next one's Campbell against Methody uh, a day later, exactly a day later, at 2.30, March the 6th 
here at Kingspan Stadium, where we're signing off from this week's podcast from Adam McKendry. Cheers, guys. Jonathan Bradley. Thank you very much. And me, Gareth Hanna. Thanks for listening.